So we've been doing these um, last few weeks, uh, the, the vision and the values of our church, and we've been considering um, the values of the Plymouth Christian Centre. And um, the first week, we looked at the fact that we want to be a Jesus-centred church. And uh, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 as kind of the foundational chapters for, um, for this teaching. And we reminded ourselves in that first week that um, we have been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. He, he said, you've been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we reflected on the fact that, that, um, that above all else, <laughs> As Christians, we are called to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the center of our lives. We're not about religion. We're not about religious duties or rotas. We're about a relationship with Jesus. And he has called us into that relationship with him. And we want to center our lives around that, around Jesus Christ. We want to be uh, Christians, people that follow Christ. And we also reflected on the fact that he has called us to be his representatives, we are his ambassadors, we are his apostles, his sent ones, his sanctified ones, his set-apart ones. And all that we do, we do in the name of Jesus. And we represent him here on earth. <laughs> so we want to be a Jesus-centered church, but we said he's not left us to do all of this by ourselves, but he has resourced us by his Holy Spirit. And Paul said, as he wrote to the Corinthians, when I came to you, it wasn't in my own strength or in my own gifting, or in, in wise or clever words of rhetoric, but it was in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So we want to be a, a Jesus-centered uh, Jesus church. And then we talked um, about being um, a Bible-based church that <clears throat> Paul spoke about in, in that Corinthians uh, letter. He spoke of the fact that the Jews, they, they're looking for supernatural signs. They're looking for for power, they're looking for wonders, they're looking for a kind of a transcendent, transcendental experience. And he said the Greeks, they like wisdom, they like rhetoric, they like to stand and philosophize and argue. But we, Paul said, we preach Christ, and we preach Christ crucified. And Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. And we talked about a worldview, and that everybody has a worldview, a view of the world, a pair of glasses through which they see the world, and that it is so vital in this day, more than ever, that we have a biblical worldview. And so we want to be a church that preaches the Bible, that teaches the Bible, that explores the Bible together in our homes, that from the youngest in the children's work, in the kids' zone, through to the oldest, the fourth generation, we want to be a Bible-based church, people that are founded upon the wisdom of God and the power of God. And if we present that to our generation, if we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, that is what we have to offer. If we offer the Bible and, and Christ as explained in the Bible, that is what will transform people's lives. That is what happened when Nicky Gumbel, a barrister in London, uh, saw, as he was at Cambridge University, saw his friends becoming Christians and... Uh, reflected on the fact and thought, I, I don't want to become a Christian. I, I think Christians are weird, and I think they're going to take all the joy and fun out of my life. And so he resisted it, but he said he, he took the Bible 
And he started to read it. And through the Bible, he encountered Jesus Christ. And his life was transformed. And I think as we offer people scriptural truth and the good news of the gospel, it will transform their lives. And how can they know this truth unless we preach it, unless they hear it? And that is upon us to do that as the Plymouth Christian Centre. Last week, we spoke about being a spirit-led church. And we reflected on the fact that we want to be a church that grows in the fruit of the Spirit. And um, we thought particularly about love and Paul's teaching in Corinthians again, that I, I can speak in tongues, I can perform miracles, I can feed the poor, I can do all of these things, Paul said, but if I do not have love, I have nothing. And we reflected on the fact that if we are Christians, we are to grow in, the expectation is upon us that we will grow in the fruit of the Spirit of God and that we will become more like Jesus. And that list in Galatians 5 of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and so on and self-control is an expectation of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We also talked about from 1 Corinthians that that, um, that the Spirit of God reveals the mind of God. That I, you don't know necessarily what I am thinking. I don't know what you're thinking. Only you know that. Only your spirit within you knows that, the Bible says. In the same way, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God and reveals it to us. And there is the expectation that those who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God. And so it may be a thought or an intuition or a dream or a sense that we need to pray for someone or um, we talked about in our jobs and in every area of our life how we can ask for and expect the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we also reflected on the fact that God has given through his Holy Spirit, given gifts to the church. And there are numerous gift lists in the Bible that highlight the fact that As the Spirit wills, he gives gifts to the body of Christ so that the body can build itself up in love and edify itself. So we want to be that kind of church and we want to be a a church that is led by the Spirit of God. And this morning, we're going to look at our our fourth and final value. (coughs) And hopefully, it will all fit together. (laughs) Um, We are going to be a... um, We want to be a people-focused church. We want to be a people-focused church, people that love and reach out to people. The statement is this. We want to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unjudged people and to be a church where people can belong and experience community and play their part. There's three parts to that statement. First of all, we want to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unchurched people, people that don't yet know Jesus, that have perhaps nothing to do with church, wouldn't darken the doors of a church. We want to be a people that are reaching out to people like that. We want to be a a church, secondly, where people can belong and experience community. And thirdly, we want to be a church where people can play their part and be a vital part of the body of Christ. So our vision statement says that Plymouth Christian Centre exists to love and serve people, enabling them to become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And we are called 
to reach out relentlessly to unchurched people. Let me read you um, this passage from John Ortberg's book, Everybody is Normal Until You Get to Know Them. Some years ago, I visited a little museum on Nantucket Island devoted to a volunteer organization formed centuries ago. In those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous because of the storms in the Atlantic along the rocky coast of Massachusetts. Many lives would be lost within a mile or so of land. So a group of volunteers went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was called the Humane Society. These built little huts along the shore. They had people watching the sea all the time. Whenever a ship went down, the word would go out, and these people would devote everything to save every life they could. They did not put themselves at risk for money or recognition, but only because they prized human life. To remind them what was at stake, they adopted a motto. You have have to go out, but you don't have to come back. This doesn't sound like a very catchy little recruiting slogan, does it? But it was. It is fascinating to read accounts of people who would risk everything, even their lives, to save people they had never met. Over time, things changed. After a while, the US Coast Guard began to take over the task of rescue. For a while, the Coast Guard and the Life Saving Society worked side by side. Eventually, the idea carried the day was let the professionals do it, they're better trained, they get paid for it. Volunteers stopped manning the little huts. They stopped searching the coastlines for ships in danger. They stopped sending teams out to rescue drowning people. Yet a strange thing happened. They couldn't bring themselves to disband. The life-saving society still exists today. The members meet every once in a while to have dinners. They enjoy one another's company. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. We are called to love and serve people, enabling them to become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. One day a man came to Jesus, one of the religious scholars of his day, and hearing the lively exchanges of question and answer and seeing how sharp Jesus was in his answers, He put in his question, which is most important of all the commandments? And Jesus said, the first in importance is, listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one, so love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy. And here is the second, love others as well as you love yourself. There's no other commandment that ranks with these. The love of God, as we reflected last week, precedes everything and permeates everything that we do. It's the foundation stone. It's the motivating factor. It's the starting point. It's the finishing point. When we lose sight of this, of Jesus' great commission to us, his great commandment to us, we're diminished and our mission and our ministry is ineffective. What we do is in the name of Jesus with the heart and the mind of Christ. And this unconditional and unlimited love is what the evangelist John calls God's first love. He says, let us love because God first loved us. God loved us first, and so let us show that love to other people. 
And I would say that if you don't experience the love of God for yourself, you can't show it to anybody else. If we feel nothing of God's heart, nothing of his passion, nothing of his love, then we have nothing to give away. We might as well join the Women's Institute and sing Jerusalem and make jam. Because we've got nothing that's especially good to give. All we've got is packaged morality and a collection of good works. And we don't necessarily do those very well. The pouring out of this love to other people, loving my neighbor, Christian or non, as myself, is what Jesus calls us to. And this is the overflow, the networking of my relationship, the outworking of my relationship with God, is to love others. How can we grow in love like this? How can we be that life-saving society? How can we be those people? We can ask God to pour his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, like we talked about last week. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's one of the works of the Spirit of God is to produce that kind of love in us, not that we can produce it ourselves. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And also, as Steve Chalk used to say, when you look into people's eyes, see there the eyes of Christ. Then these righteous ones will reply, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you anything to drink, or a stranger and help you, or naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you sick in prison and visit you? And I, the king, will tell them, when you did it, to these, my brothers, you were doing it to me. When you look into someone's eyes, see there the eyes of Christ. When you look into the eyes of a needy person, a troubled person, a difficult person, look and see there the eyes of Christ. When did I do that, Lord? You did it when you did it for the least of these, Jesus said. You did it for me. You did it for me. Love is a verb. It's not a feeling. Put yourself in a place where you are loving others. St. John of the Cross said, Mission is putting love where love is not. Putting love where love is not. It's incarnational in that we put ourselves into people's lives and it's attractional in that we invite people into the warmth of fellowship and communion. We do this in many ways in our church here, we do it in practical ways, we do it in outreach ways, we do it through children's work and through outreach work, we do it through the Alpha Course. One of the ways we do it is in, in the Love Thy Neighbour ministry, where we, we give out food in the centre just across the road here, in the business centre, on a Tuesday and on a Saturday. We'll watch a little video now of Kelvin, who's involved in that ministry, where he gives out food and he and his team do that in Jesus' name. What we do is we offer free food. We don't ask questions. Um, we treat people like human beings so they can, uh, if they don't like a particular thing, they don't have to take it. We, we have a quite a variety of choice. We meet people that are full of addiction, heroin. We meet young mums that are uh, struggling from physical abuse in the home and trying to make ends meet. We meet people also that are just hungry and trying to make, uh, make the money go round. 
It's become a warm place where people can find friendship. We tried to counsel them and help them maybe with, with benefits. Um, but there are lonely, broken people that are coming to not just have food, but to have help and to feel that they actually have some meaning again. I want to see this area and this community through the eyes of Jesus. I want to see what he sees. And we only see that when we move out from our couple hours of a Sunday morning or evening and we walk around and we engage with the community. And we realise that side is a great, great need that can be met. But we're able to do this because of the generosity of people's hearts in our fellowship. Without that, this really wouldn't work. So that ministry runs on a Tuesday evening and on a Saturday morning and, um, and a number of you have been involved in that or given to that. But we are called to reach out to these ones and it is messy. And, and this again in, in John Ortberg's book is what he, he writes. He says, some time ago I worked at a Baptist church that had a sudden large influx of unchurched people. They sometimes preferred music and language and living arrangements and beverages that came as an unpleasant shock to folks who had been around the church all their lives. So we brought in an expert, a New Testament professor known as Dr. B, to talk about communities and grace. A stone thrower from way back complained to Dr. B about how she did not approve much of these newcomers and complained Shouldn't they clean up their act before they come to church? And Dr. B can get quite passionate about this subject. And he did then. If you want to go to a church where such people are not welcome and never darken the door, you will find many such churches in any city. You may attend there if you wish. But who will welcome those who are far from the church? What about, and here Dr. B off the top of his head, whipped off a long string of adjectives. I can only partly remember. What about the chain-smoking, adult-channel-watching, playboy-reading, whiskey-guzzling, wife-swapping, tax-cheating, child-neglecting SOBs? There was a long pause. People were not expecting this term from a New Testament professor. Then out of the silence, one of the deacons in the back asked, Do you mean sons of Baptists? <laughs> Who will welcome the sons of Baptists? <laughs> Who will welcome them? We are called to be, we are expected to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unchurched people. But secondly, we want to be a church where people can belong and experience community. We said in some of our subtext of our values is that we want to be a church for all generations. A church that loves and nurtures children and young people, and that cherishes and honours older people. A church where people can belong and experience and be involved in true community. A church that is big enough to impact the city and small enough to care for the individual. And before you get some cosy sense of the word community and what it means, think on this. As Henry Nguyen said, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. 
Dorothy Day said, I really only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. And Anne Lamott said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. <laughs> in his book, Everybody is Weird and Normal, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, John Ortberg reminds us of the scriptural truth of how messed up we really are. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how many messed up families there are in Genesis? Here's a quick summary. Cain is jealous of Abel and kills him. Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. Noah, the most righteous man of his generation, gets drunk and curses his own grandson. Lot, when his home is surrounded by residents of Sodom who want to violate his visitors, offers instead that they can have sex with his daughters. Later on, his daughters get him drunk and get impregnated by him, and Lot is the most righteous man in Sodom. Abraham plays favourites between his son Isaac and Ishmael, and they're estranged. Isaac plays favourites between his sons Jacob and Esau, and they're better enemies for 20 years. Jacob plays favourites between Joseph and his other 11 sons, and the brothers want to kill Joseph and end up selling him into slavery. Their marriages are disasters. Abraham has sex with his wife's servant, then sends her and their son off to the wilderness at his wife's request. Isaac and Rebekah fight over which boy gets the blessing. Jacob marries two wives and ends up with both of their maids as his concubines as well when they get into a fertility contest. Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his daughter-in-law when she disguises herself as a prostitute. She does this because she's childless since her first two husbands, both sons of Judah, were so wicked that God killed them both. And Judah reneged on his obligations to her. These people need a therapist. <laughs> These are not the Waltons. They need Dr. Phil, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Spock, Dr. Zeus. They need somebody. <laughs> Do you feel any better about your family? Why does the writer of Genesis include all this stuff? There's a very important reason. The writer of Scripture is trying to establish a deep theological truth. Everybody is weird. Every one of us, all we like sheep, have habits we can't control, past deeds we can't undo, flaws we can't correct. This is the cast of characters that God has to work with. And this is church. <laughs> They devoted themselves, we reflected in recent weeks, to the fellowship, to the koinonia, to the church. They devoted themselves. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul writes and he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Greg Ogden reminds us that we live in a time of radical individualism. We reflected on that recently as well that has torn the heart out of Christian community. Emphasizing the absolute importance of community to spiritual growth, David Watson, who wrote the book, the seminal work, Discipleship, said in the Western church, the emphasis has been excessively and unhealthily on the individual. Hirsch and Hirsch, husband and wife, 
right, of the fact that we have made the nuclear family into an idol. Jean Vanier, in his book on community, says the loss of family and neighborhood groups has led to extreme individualism, but it could also give rise to a deeper search for community and belonging. And the Facebook generation has hundreds and even thousands of friends, but very few, if any, real companions. Ken Shigematsu writes about this in his book, God in My Everything. And he says this, in a New York Times Magazine article a few years ago, Hal Nidzviki wrote about the experience of starting his Facebook account. Soon after he joined, Hal had accumulated 700 friends. I was absurdly proud, he writes, of how many friends and even strangers I had managed to sign up. But the irony was that while he had more online friends, he had fewer actual friends to spend time with than ever before. So he decided to have a Facebook party to turn his online friends into actual in-person friends. Hal invited all 700 of his Facebook friends to his favorite local bar. 15 of them said they would be there and 60 others said they might be there. He guessed that only about 20 people would actually show up. That evening, he showered, he splashed on some cologne, he put on new pants and his favorite shirt, and then he headed over to the neighborhood watering hole and he waited, and he waited, and he waited. Eventually, one person did show up. It was a woman he didn't even know. She was a friend of a friend. They ended up making small talk and she left. He, Hal sat at the bar alone and waited until midnight. Nitzviki concludes his article with these words, 700 friends and I was drinking alone that night. Spiritual formation simply cannot go forward as is intended, says Dallas Willard, by God, unless the individual is incorporated into a body of believers where he or she can receive the benefit of the gifts that others have. Being devoted to the church, being devoted to fellowship, being devoted to community, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they met in their homes, they broke bread together. They met regularly. They devoted themselves to the koinonia. We want to be a place where people can belong and where people can experience community, but we know it's not easy. But we also know it's countercultural. It radically stands against the rampant individualism of our day, and it is so necessary for spiritual formation and growth. So I want to show you this video now of uh, just some of the ways that we do that in our church here or attempt to do it. Let's watch that together. One of the things I love about this church is, is sometimes you stand on the platform and you look out across a congregation and you just see young and old interacting together. You see multicultural, multi-generational. It's just a wonderful thing to see. And, and when you think about it, the only thing that could really draw this amount of different people together is Jesus. I've been here for probably nearly 40 years now since it first opened here. And it's been a journey but it's been a good journey. We've had a few ups and downs along the way, but yeah, this is my church family and I love it. I really enjoy it because I get to see my friends that I don't normally see and I get to like encounter God, depending on like the lesson. Sometimes you feel like you're really close to God. 
I like that I get to interact with more people with similar beliefs and find like the community groups really fun. It can be quite difficult to get to know people, so we, we try and be intentional about that. We run a kind of a connect culture within the church. So we've got our connect corner, you'll see actually within the church, you can go and find information where you sign up for courses. We have a connect lunch periodically, and that's a great opportunity for newcomers and existing members to meet together. Connect also applies to community groups and activity groups. Activity groups, people get together, just low level stuff, just hanging out, whether it's drinking a coffee, going for a walk, playing football, whatever that may be. There's loads of different things to do, so for a football club on a Monday evening, um, a lot of those people from church go, different age groups from like young ones all the way up to adults. I've made a lot of really close friendships here, which I didn't think I'd make when we first joined the church, but I'm really happy with the friends I've made. This is a big church and you can get lost in amongst the congregation, but every one of us needs a smaller group because you can have a community then and you learn about each other's lives and how they are and can pray for each other and we go out together and have meals. It's really nice because it's another family within a bigger family. Church is a very open place where you can make lots of friends and since all of your friends come from the same belief, they all really understand you and like what you're going through. So you can come on like a Sunday or Monday or Friday or any day during like the church days and like pray together if you're worried about something and you can gather together and talk about all your problems concerning God so he can help you. So also within the church we have a pastoral care team, uh, a team that look after people that are, that are in crisis, um, but we also have church care where everybody looks after each other. If you notice that someone's missing, perhaps you sit next to somebody or you know that somebody's ill, um, is to let us know and we'll do whatever we can to care for people. A big part of that is the community group structure where you're part of a group of people um, that know you, that know your needs, know your family and they'll help you when you struggle. Most supportive time was after my husband died and the community group were wonderful. They made meals for me, looked after me for probably about a year and I'll never forget that because it was so loving and caring and helpful. Great. What might it look like for you and me to be devoted to fellowship, practices that support spiritual friendship? I think it's important that we play together, that we have shared interests together. One of the things that we do is um, we have activity groups. Some of them have been running all year round. So it might be craft groups, it might be the football on a Monday night, the happy feet walkers that go for walks. There's, there's a number of different groups that meet all year round, and then there are some groups that meet in the spring and the summer terms, and uh, we'll be uh, highlighting those again in the coming weeks. But I think it's important to play together and to have shared interests together. I also think hospitality and face-to-face -face contact is, is vital. And one of the ways that we want to show hospitality is in, a, in an extravagant and a warm welcome here. And I want to invite Julia and Ronnie and Memory to come and join me on the platform. And I just want to highlight the work that, that they've been involved in, in the welcome team. Hospitality is a, is a biblical principle. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. So this is Julia. Hi, Julia. <laughs> and Ronnie and Memory are en route. 
Um, so Julia is our outgoing uh, lead of our welcome team. So she was involved in uh, leading the welcome team for quite, quite a while. And um, maybe you tell us why you did it and, and what, what it involved and the benefits of that. What, what are the values behind the welcome team? Um, well, I've been running the welcome team for about three and a half years. Um, but when I was um, asked to consider um, um, taking it on, um, I was so impressed throughout my life, really, about Jesus and his welcome to other people in the Bible. And so it's lovely to read through the stories of Jesus and just know how he made people welcome. And you can imagine the look on his face and the love in his eyes. And it's always really compelled um, you know, me to be involved in some sort of hospitality thing. So when we started to develop the welcome team, that's the ethos I wanted to sort of sow, that, um, that everybody needs to be really welcome here, have a warm welcome, um, to know that they really matter. Um, and so that was the first challenge, really. Um, what team are we going to be working with? How can we sow that ethos into that team and the wider church? But it was modelled on what I know the love of Jesus does, and that is to give everybody a really warm welcome and to say that they really matter. So that's where, we, that's where I started. Um, but also what impressed me and challenged me as well was that it's known that within about five minutes of coming into a church, people have already made the decision whether they're going to stay and make their home there or whether they're never going to come back again. And I'm sure you have been to a restaurant or a shop or somewhere where you've received a great service or welcome and not so great. And, um, and we never want that to happen here. We want people that come in through those doors, whether they've been here years and years, or whether they're newcomers, we want them to know that they are very welcome and that they really matter. Um, so that was the, the challenge that I faced, yeah. Great, and Julia, you've, um, you've now handed over the reins to Ronnie and Memory. So um, we wanted to say thank you to you for leading the team so well over this last couple of years. And, uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm aware that they can't see you on the other side of this, <laughs> this board. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. And, and it's good to, to do a great handover to Ronnie and Memory, who are now leading the team and uh, continue with this really important work. Um, Tell us why it's important to you guys and, and the fact that it's not just people that are wearing these lanyards that need to give a welcome. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Thank you so much for that. Um, yes, when, when Julia asked me to take over, it was no questions asked because I really, really love welcoming people. Really love the people of Plymouth, love the people of Plymouth Christian Centre. Um, but what I wanted to say is whilst we are doing this, helping people to come into church, it's not just us who are wearing these, who are welcoming people. We know there are loads of uh, established members in this church who have been coming here for years. Come on, be part of us. As you are sitting there in the chairs, speak to people, greet them, let them know who you are, just so we can develop a culture of welcoming people in this church. We just want to be a very kindly church, if you like, so that we give you that experience. 
that Julia said, when you go away, you would think, I would like to come back again. Or at least when we are away as church members, we will be thinking, you know what, our church is a very lovely, welcoming church. Mm -hmm. Memory, you got anything to add to that? <laughs> yeah, um, just like everybody said, you know when you go to a place, the first impression that you get, it, you decide whether you want to come back or not. So just having a, 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 a smiley face, you know, a warm welcome, we just want you to come back. So I would encourage everybody, you know, to be welcoming. We, we are a welcoming church. Like Julia said, everybody has improved and you feel welcome when you come here. So we also say, like you've said, don't just wait for the welcome team, but all of us have this role to play, all of us. And don't ask the question, are you new here? Because <laughs> you will invariably get the answer, no, I've been coming for seven years. <laughs> so say, we've never spoken. <laughs> Have you been coming a very long time? Um, never had the opportunity to chat with you. So thank you, guys. Let's give these... Um, thank you, thank you. So hospitality is so vital to allow people to belong and um, breaking of bread is a, is a part of the body of Christ where we share bread together. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. Romans 12:13. share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And the Lord's Supper and much more, they used to take communion or the Lord's Supper as part of a larger gathering and time of eating together. They called Jesus a glutton because he spent a lot of his time eating with people. Eugene Peterson said, it's striking how much of Jesus' life is told in settings defined by meals. <laughs> so I want us to be a hospitable church. And as uh, Paul highlighted on the video, to have a connect culture, connect lunches, connect groups. The yearning to attach and connect to love and be loved is the fiercest longing of our soul. And another way, as I wrap this up now, is to get involved, and, and as Joy said, it's not always easy in a larger church setting, is to serve people, is to get involved in serving people. Every body to play their part is so vital. I think this morning, as I think of this, I think of Val Harris. Val normally sits here on the front right of my front right, your front left, and she's been coming for a good while. And uh, she's not here this morning because she's cooking for the Freedom Encounters team as they're away at Buckfast. But she comes every week, she bakes endless amounts of cakes <laughs> for the prayer center on a Wednesday, for the Alpha course, um, She's constantly cooking, helping, baking, and she loves it. <laughs> she loves doing it. She makes arguably, this is a very dangerous statement, arguably the best lemon drizzle cake in the church. But um, that's open to debate, and I'm not, I'm not making that statement. Um, but I have watched, I've watched Val's growth spiritual growth. I've watched her fellowship. I've watched her become part of this family. And, uh, and part of the way she's done that is she has served. And she said to us once, and I think when we left her off a realtor, she said, do not, 
do not take away from me the opportunity <laughs> to serve in this ministry. Because <laughs> um, it, it is a way to grow and to get to know people. And this is what Ken Shigematsu says in his book. He says, as a church, we encourage people to serve, among other reasons, as a way to get to know other people. Cutting carrots and tomatoes along us side other people as you prepare a meal for homeless people not only blesses those you are serving but it also can begin to deepen friendships and this is what we were talking about last week when we discussed the fact that every one of us has a spiritual gift and everybody here has a part to play we want to be a church where people can be themselves where they can enjoy the journey they can have fun and they can play their part and in a couple of weeks time on March the 12th in a morning service, we're going to just have a ministry fair where as we end up our series here on uh, our vision and values, we're going to be highlighting just all of the ministries across the church, some of which you may be unaware of, and some of the opportunities that there are to get involved and to get your sleeves rolled up and to get to know some people and to serve. And so we're going to be highlighting that in a week or two's time and giving you the chance to connect with others in a smaller group. We want to be a people-focused church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unchurched people, to be a church where people can belong and experience community and play their part. I hope as I've made clear this morning that that's not easy always. The Bible has made it clear that it's not easy. And Eugene Peterson speaks both of the Shekinah of congregation, the glory of it, and the mess of it. <laughs> And, uh, but the joy of it as well, which is most important of all the commandments, the man asked Jesus. And Jesus said, the first in importance is, listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one. So love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy. And here is the second, love others as well as you love yourself. There's no other commandment that ranks with these. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that as a, as a church, as a people, as the ecclesia, the called out ones, that this would be a place of, of radical community, Lord, where we break down the cultural totem of our day of rampant individualism and we counteract it Lord by face to face communion and companionship we pray Lord for those who are on the outside or on the outskirts and find it difficult to get to know people we pray for points of connection and friendship and play and fellowship we pray for shared meals we pray for warm welcomes. We pray, Lord, for developing friendships. We pray, Lord, for the fabric of community. We pray that as we serve together and play our part, God, in the body of Christ, that, Lord, we will find ourselves growing in friendship and fellowship. And we pray, Lord, that as the early church, we would be a church that is devoted, devoted to koinonia, devoted to fellowship, as we saw during COVID and the inability to meet together, the absolute vital importance of face-to-face -face contact and friendship. Father, we pray that we would grow in these values 
that we would be a church that is Jesus-centered, is in deep and ongoing relationship with Jesus. We'd be a church that is Bible-based and teaches the truth of Scripture. We'd be a church, Lord God, that is Spirit-led and led and guided by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'd be a church that is people-focused. We would never forget that we are called to be a life-saving church, a church that reaches out to those that don't yet know you. We pray for every individual here, God, that we would sense the call of Christ to do this. And when we look in people's eyes, we will see there the eyes of Christ. Father, I pray that you would touch our hearts afresh and we can only give away what we ourselves have received. So I pray again, Lord, that you would pour out your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we give away what we ourselves have received and that we love because we ourselves have first been loved. We know the love of the Father and we know what it is to be loved and we want to share that love with other people. So God, continue to touch us as a people and as a body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.